This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. It's our 200th episode. And you know what that means. Lightning round. Lightning round. And more lightning round. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. Hey everybody, welcome to the 200th episode, hurrah, hurrah, of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Yes, we've made it through 200 of these, uh, the last bunch of them through the help of our uh, Patreon sponsors. So if you're not yet a Patreon sponsor, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash Ken and Robin and join the party. And as is our want, Ken... Uh, we're going to have a lightning round episode, but first I guess we've got a little bit of news. Uh, we must first of all thank Annie's judges for once again nominating Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff in the Best Podcast category. Thanks a lot. Yes, thank you so much, judges. And of course, we'd like to thank all of you and your loved ones and your co-workers and people who are sleeping next to you with unlocked cell phones for voting for Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff for on the Ennies. Uh, thank you, our listeners and supporters, without whom the entire prospect would not just be nugatory, but it probably wouldn't even happen. And I'd also like to thank those of you who, uh, judges and voters who supported, uh, Feng Shui 2, which is nominated in five categories. Uh, we would both like to thank, uh, everybody for their, uh, nods to the Page XX webzine. And Ken, you have a few more thank yous. Yes, I have, uh, five more thank yous for people who voted for the Dracula dossier in its various incarnations. And a thank you to people who voted for Ken writes about stuff in the category best aid and accessory, which is, I'm not exactly sure what that's all about, but whatever. It, it gives us an opportunity to, to pit ourselves against one another. That's one exactly. of the categories where we're uh, in opposition. <laughs> yes. Um, although, since you have something that actually belongs in the category, <laughs> we'll see how that works out. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, comparing uh, cool uh, writing about stuff to a GM screen, that, that's an easy distinction to... Uh, yes. uh, it's almost as if it's the Diana Jones Award. If you're voting it's... most apposite aid uh, and accessory, I, I fear that I shall be the loser in that contest. At any rate, big thanks to all, and we'll find out what happens 
on Friday at Gen Con. And without further ado, then, uh, we have culled from the internet, starting with our Patreon backers, a list of lightning round questions. Uh, as is my want, I have focused on things that uh, allow us to give more than just a quick answer. So you the sort of fave, your favorite this or your favorite that uh, questions I've been very uh, parsimonious in including. But uh, let's see where we go. So, Although obviously if you support uh, the Patreon at a non-parsimonious level, you will overcome Robin's parsimony thusly. Well, perhaps in episode 250. I didn't do any of that sort of waiting. Where Robin! I, uh, where I, I didn't uh, check to see... Canadians, was- ladies and gentlemen. Canadians. This... This is why we can't have nice things. Yes, 200 is egalitarian and Canadian, and uh, perhaps 250 will be ruthlessly uh, sorted by Ken, and therefore capitalistic. (laughs) Well, it may not be sorted by Ken, but (laughs) (laughs) let's not be crazy here. Uh, Obviously, we have management labor issues to discuss uh, (laughs) offline. At any rate, uh, Ken, why don't you hit us with the first of these exciting lightning lightning round questions? Brian Thomas asks, in all your podcast episodes, I have not heard an explanation of why you call your segments huts. Was this choice whimsy or is there a time travel conspiracy in play here? And Robin, uh, I believe that this is on you and it is more whimsical than it is temporo peregranatorial. Yeah. So it used to be that I, my contribution to uh, the web and, and attention calling to myself was a blog that I, uh, uh, tried to blog once a day, every weekday. And then uh, that, my categories there, just out of pure whimsy, uh, described uh, the tags I used were huts. So the gaming hut and the cinema hut and so forth. And so basically when I decided to stop doing the blog and start doing the podcast with Ken, I just uh, took that conceit over to the podcast. Therefore, the cinema hut, the tradecraft hut, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, anything that did not have a better immediate name like Ken's Time Machine or the Consulting Occultist uh, was put in a hut, or in the case of conspiracies, a corner. Uh, now, Ken, you're being modest because, of course, there is a time travel conspiracy in play here. And, and what was it? <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Well, I, I know you're reluctant to spill. Yes. Yes, I am. Um, the uh, The time travel conspiracy in play here is the conspiracy by which we are sending this very podcast through temporal radio mechanics to allied prisoners of war. And the huts refer to specific commando escape committees in various prisoner of war camps throughout the central powers, the Axis, and the various fell empires in alternate timelines. And when they hear their proper hut, they are given coded instructions it based on the seemingly aimless palaver that we get to instead of answering your question. So there, I've revealed it, and if those brave men are caught and killed thanks to Brian Thomas, I hope he can live with himself. Right. So uh, if you're ever disappointed that one of your favorite huts, uh, for example, the cartography hut, is not as commonly uh, appearing in the rotation as you would hope. Well, that's the cartography hut, of course. That's the hut that, you know, is most related to escapes and, and so on. And that's so when we do the cartography hut, that's when you know there's a big multi-timeline escape going on. So next up, lightning round! Mark Kevin Hall asks, Among the myriad of publications you've written over the years, which one do you think was unfairly overlooked by the gaming public. Ken? Well, I um, I kind of dispute the premise in that the whole reason we're writing this is for the gaming public, and if they overlook it, 
you can't really say it was unfair that they overlooked it. They just overlooked it. That said, if the question is, which of my myriad of publications do I wish people would pay more attention to? The answer is all of them. But uh, if you weight it by the amount of uh, crafty joy that I took in its creation, I kind of think, uh, by and large, that uh, my work for White Wolf gets not so much unfairly overlooked, but drowned out by the myriad of other really great people's work for White Wolf. It's harder to be an auteur within the White Wolf uh, stable. Or it, it was it was ha- made harder by the fact that they had an auteur and he behaved badly to them, they felt. <laughs> uh, so uh, things like, not just the Canine Heresy, but like my uh, scenario for Mage the Awakening in the Chicago, uh, the new Chicago uh, World of Darkness book, or the Chicago working sort of prose poem at the beginning of one of the scenarios that I think wound up in something called uh, the harvesters, but it may have wound up in a different book. I'm not exactly sure what book it even wound up. That's how overlooked it is. The author doesn't know what book it's in. Uh, Robin, what do you feel people could look at more profitably than they look at other things that are not by you or me? Uh, well, uh, what I would say is that uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the book of ants, which is the extended example slash metafiction uh, companion to uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, and uh, not as many people picked that up as picked up the Dreamhounds book. So if you're wondering what you should pick up of mine that you haven't yet, and you haven't picked up the book of ants to go with your Dreamhounds of Paris, uh, I would strongly recommend that you do that. It's time for Lightning Round! Kalen asks, if someone offered you Games of Thrones level funding to produce a series based on any of your works, which would it be, Robin? I would pick the uh, Yellow King continuity, expanded continuity laid out in the new tales of the Yellow Sign fiction anthology, uh, which is a collection of my short stories. Uh, and they all sort of uh, connect in different ways and connect to the uh, Robert Chambers Yellow King uh, uh, myth. And uh, that would be a good thing for many reasons. I think it would be great for sort of a multi-level series which would bring in different realities over the course of the seasons and also happens to be one that i own the rights to outright there you go and on a similar uh on a a similar criterion i would select the day after ragnarok uh which is of course my exciting worlds of submachine guns and sorcery uh set in the smoldering ruins of 1948 after ragnarok or after ragnarok was aborted by harry truman uh, hitting the Midgard Serpent in the eye with the Trinity device. Day After Ragnarok, available from Atomic Overmind, showrunners of Hollywood everywhere. Lightning, Lightning round. round! I'm disappointed that uh, the way these have set up requires me to set Ken up for the obvious punchline. Uh, so this one is Friedrich Bjarnson asking, How is D&D like Trotskyism? And how is D&D like Trotskyism? They are both primarily played by people with beards. They involve imagining a impossible world and killing a lot of people to get there. Robin? They are more interested in fighting with schismatics uh, than they are uh, even with uh, fighting with everyone else. So the uh, addition wars are the most Trotskyist possible thing you could imagine. Lightning round! Conrad Kinch asks, Ken has said that Hollywood doesn't know how to make movies about religious faith anymore. Has there ever been a Christian role-playing game? Could there be, Robin? The avowedly Christian role-playing games have been uh, sort of fundamentalist-centered, and I think that's a weird mix. Uh, But you could certainly do, if you've got the 
a literary license to Narnia, you could certainly do a Narnia game that uh, properly underlined uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Anglican theology. Yes, um, I think that uh, you can play, obviously, Pendragon as a devout Christian role-playing game, just as the authors of the Grail cycle were devout, if weird, Christians. And so I think you could easily make uh, any uh, good role-playing game with sort of uh, religious mechanics, a Christian role-playing game. As Robin says, Dragon Raid, which I think is the only explicitly Christian role-playing game, was done uh, by and for evangelicals. And as a non-evangelical, I did not play it and have heard no reason that I should change that uh, based on art as opposed to theology. Lightning Round! Uh, Wesley Griffin asks... Do you have any recommendations for rye whiskeys, American or Canadian? I recommend Templeton rye, which is American and is uh, allegedly made from a pre-prohibition recipe. And I don't know about that, but I know that it is very tasty. Um, I think it is uh, a good sipping rye, which there are not as many of, I feel. But it is also a a pleasant rye to mix, although it's a little expensive. I wouldn't I wouldn't mix it more than once just to see what it tastes like. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend Templeton's, Robin. As a young man grown up in, in Ontario, I'm going to recommend the quintessential Canadian rye whiskey experience, which is not as a sipping rye. That's not uh, something you go off into the bush and do at a bush party. You have rye and coke, and the archetypal rye with which to have uh, rye and coke as a uh, young uh, drinker or perhaps a later a drinker reminiscing about your uh, early drinking years would be Canadian Club. <laughs> Lightning, Lightning round! Ollie Toivanen asks, what parts of human life have not yet been used as major topics of a role-playing game? Contractions! Roll for initiative! Robin? I guess we haven't had eating the role-playing game. I imagine there's probably... I know there's at least one... Uh, story game about being alien chefs. So even the foodie craze is, is represented there. I don't think there's anything that's entirely unrepresented. The biggest chunk of human life that is ill-represented in role-playing games is romance, uh, where, you know, the works of Emily Kerr Boss take up a big uh, chunk of that, and we're getting, you know, monster hearts now and uh, stuff like that. So that's beginning to be filled in. But uh, at this point, uh, many decades into the hobby, I don't think there have been any real big giant gaps in, in human activity or thought that have been uh, left untrammeled. I think that uh, you could say a similar thing about Pendragon as the only game that actually thinks seriously about child raising and leaving the next generation on to do your work. So there may be some room in there for a game that is either generational like Pendragon or focuses entirely on transferring skills and one hopes some semblance of morality to the next generation and maybe something that's just two generations where you play the parents in the first half of the game and the children in the second half and work out the uh the the transition ideally over a background of of stabbing orcs or something else uh nerd tropey on a note of survival uh let us then uh sneak into this uh, next commercial which uh along with our uh, patreon backers is essential to the survival of this podcast and then we'll be back with more Lightning Round! The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. 
After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now! Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. And now we're back, and it's time for another Lightning Lightning Round! Round. Josh Rose asks, Which Cthulhu Mythos story is your personal favorite, Lovecraft or others? Oh, wait, he's got an and. And? Uh, Okay, well, let's let's start with uh, number one here. What is your personal favorite, Lovecraft or others? The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft, which, in addition to its virtues as a uh, as a Lovecraft story, also is a nearly perfect or possibly perfect weird tale. I would say The Whisperer in the Darkness, uh, because uh, subjectively, it is the one that most creeped me out, and I, I've always connected it to the austere forested landscape of uh, Muskoka up on the Canadian Shield, uh, where I used to go and, and visit as a kid, and uh, I imagined it being placed there, and that uh, created a sense of personal horror for me. So the one that really got me was Whisper in the Darkness. And? And? Which Lovecraft mythos story would you recommend as one to point the uninitiated to, and why, Robin? I would say The Call of Cthulhu, because it lays out the uh, mythos, I think, most directly and most succinctly, and if someone wants to be pointed to Lovecraft, I think they probably want to know what the heck all this Cthulhu stuff is that they keep seeing pop up on memes in their Twitter stream. And I would agree with you on that. Well, when we agree, it's time for another Lightning Round! Robert Hansen asks, What one work of mainstream or literary fiction would you recommend to someone who normally only consumes genre fiction? Robin, what single vitamin would you recommend for someone who only consumes things with no vitamins in them? Uh, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies. Mm. Uh, This is the first novel in a trilogy called the Deptford Trilogy. And it starts with the mystery of why a noted Canadian industrialist is found uh, dead with a stone in his mouth. 
and then uh, gets into the uh, biography of uh, not only the victim, but his lifelong friend, the narrator. And it is full of um, myth and Jungian resonance and Cartesian uh, detail. And I think it's, uh, uh, although it's not a genre novel in any way, is uh, a mainstream novel that uh, most geeks would delight in. I think that I would recommend, uh, by contrast, or maybe not by contrast, I would recommend um, Pride and Prejudice, because it is a novel that everyone should read. And if you have not read it, because you have only read genre fiction, then you should read it. And at least you will know. I don't know that I'm recommending it so much in the spirit of, hey, here's the first taste. Look, mainstream fiction isn't so bad, as, as much as it is in the sort of stern Calvinist reproof of, why have you not read Pride and Prejudice? Good Lord. Time for another lightning round! Michael Corlim asks, What would you do for a living if it wasn't what you're doing for a living? I feel like we've answered this question before. Um, and we would answer this question professionally. We would. That's what we would do over and over. Um, if writer is not what I'm doing, if people say, No, no, Ken, you're, you're a, you're a nerd professionally, uh, I might be like a, a, a mainstream writer. If writing is off the table, I mean, good Lord knows, I uh, don't have any actual skills. History professor would be fun, especially if you managed to sneak in before the collapse of the humanities, and so you had tenure and a hefty book allowance. If I had to do something completely non-creative uh, in some other alternate d dimension, I imagine that I would be a lawyer. Lightning round! Brent Brown asks, I once heard Ken say that he considers himself fundamentally non-serious. That sounds like a healthy perspective. Please elaborate. Especially, how does one remain non-serious in a world which takes itself so seriously? Robin, would you like to elaborate on either my or perhaps your fundamental non-seriousness? Uh, I do not think... I think of myself as sometimes very serious, but I do not think of myself as reverent. Uh, I uh, Perhaps verging on impious, and not just toward... Uh, other people's belief systems, but even toward uh, secular progressivism in that I think it is important to uh, avoid being self-righteous and to pursue uh, whatever your uh, broader goals are in terms of what you're trying to do as a either as a political person or for, I suppose, for spiritual people in a spiritual sense, to make sure that you do it leavened with a sense of humor and irony and a realization that uh, changing people is much, much harder than it looks, which is something that we understand most of us from our personal relationships, but it's also extraordinarily hard to do with strangers, especially when it comes to deeply held abstract belief systems. So to the extent that you can change anything about anybody, it is important, I think, to do so with a irreverent sense of perspective and coupled with that, the understanding that you are highly likely to fail. Uh, Ken, does that relate at all to uh, your fundamentally uh, non-serious nature? Um, kind of the opposite in that part of the thing that keeps me non-serious is reverence for actual accomplishment and things of actual worth, such as, you know, the, the, the creation of the stars or the United States Constitution or things of that ilk. Um, and by comparison, screwing around with little monkey games seems relatively or fundamentally even non-serious. But I would say that, uh, sort of on a philosophical level, if you sort of take the, uh, a median point between a couple of quotes that have always stuck with me. There's a line from the Roman poet Terence, which is, 
Um, I am a man, nothing human is foreign to me, which is both uh, comforting and terrifying, if you think about it. And uh, Byron's quote, uh, if I laugh at any mortal thing, it is that I may not weep, which I think the more you know about the mortal world, the more you realize you've only got two responses. And being fundamentally serious is a great way to get those horrible little wrinkles between your eyes. So I recommend. I, I think that's where our, our answers intersect. Yes, I think, I think it is. So, um, uh, I recommend fundamental non-seriousness because at the very least, um, uh, you won't be surprised when the rest of the world doesn't take you at all seriously. Lightning round! Alan Wilkins asks, flumps, threat or menace? Threat. Menace! Lightning round! Tim Brandis asks, regarding pie, crust or filling? Filling. It, 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 is the, it is the whole. It is the yin and the yang. One cannot exist without the other. You are correct, but I do leave my crusts behind and I don't leave my filling. In a world where I have to choose between crust or filling, I do not want just crust. I do not want just filling. It is crust and filling. False dichotomy. Lightning, Lightning round! Craig Maloney asks, if you could recommend one book for aspiring game designers, what book would you recommend? I don't know. I think maybe Over the Edge. <laughs> I mean, that that certainly sort of set off uh, some alarm bells in the night in my head. Robin? Uh, that's as good as any. I, I, the thing is, is that I, there's not a single game designer working today yet who learned to do it from a book because no such book exists yet. Yeah. I mean, when James Ernest finishes his book of game design. I'll bet that's the book I will recommend. Oh, is he, is he working yeah, on such he is a working thing? on a textbook of it. So, uh, recommend James Ernest's uh, as-yet-unpublished book on game design. Lightning, Lightning Round! Ben Mund asks, best genre crossover film that you can imagine? Robin, is this films that exist, but it's the best that we can imagine, or is it the best genre crossover film that we can imagine? I think he's asking us to uh, imagine a film that could exist, so I'm okay. going to suggest the film adaptation of The Fathomless Sleep, which is my gumshoe one-to-one 1930s L.A. noir adventure uh, coming in the upcoming Cthulhu Confidential introductory game book for gumshoe one-to-one. That is uh, quite the genre crossover film. I think that I could imagine a um, uh, lengthy miniseries made out of Mary Ash's Gentle. And I think that that would be interestingly genre crossover because it's a scientific detective story and a rollicking fantasy novel all at the same time with a lot of that good old uh, Game of Thrones blood and thunder that people enjoy. Lightning round! Morgan Ellis asks, do you have any new favorite recipes? I just on TV saw on, uh, I think it was on America's Test Kitchen, something called Coke O Riesling. And I have not made it yet, so I do not know that it is a new favorite recipe, but I suspect that when I do, it will become a new favorite recipe. Robin? It is grilling season. Grilling season is not a time when I think of recipes, uh, so I've been relying on old reliables for a little while, but I encourage you all to join me in doing what I'm going to do tonight, which is, uh, after the main grilling, grill up some nice thick pineapple slices and let them caramelize mm. on the grill. Mm. Oh, grilled pineapple is so good. Yes. So that's a summer recommendation because summer is not time for new recipes. It is time for being lazy, making salads, and doing the fine old reliable things where you uh, slap some veggies and uh, perhaps uh, some a bit of a former animal onto your grill. Lightning, Lightning round! round. 
Andrew M. Reichart asks, how do we get more fiction out of you guys? Robin? My schedule has been kind of packed lately, but I am the uh, unannounced thing that is uh, beckoning on the horizon will have a fiction component. And I'm also ha- hoping to have some time to put together an ebook release of a collection of my previously published short stories. So watch this space. And for me, the answer is as m- much as it is with anything else, start piling up money and I'll tell you when you've got more fiction out of me. Lightning round! Sean asks, have you ever disagreed so strongly about a work of art that even a pleasant Canadian and civilized Chicagoan got heated under the collar? I don't think that we even got heated under the collar. Although I do recall our discussion of the merits of Picasso turning more rancorous than I had thought uh, likely in the 21st century. I, I blotted that from my memory. I was going to say that yeah, I don't think that's how rancorous it was. And by rancorous, I mean to say that Robin raised his eyebrow at me. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I layered on the sarcasm a little harder. Yeah, we don't disagree strongly about anything. I mean, we have all sorts of disagreements, but we never mm-hmm. it never gets heated. No, because that would be uncivilized. I think in part because our perspectives are actually quite different. So, again, re- returning to the you can't ever change anybody. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, especially you can't change uh, super strong-minded people with uh, highly developed opinions about everything. So, what would be the point <laughs> yes, about that, disagreeing that, strongly with Ken? That that would be um, uh, not just uh, unpleasant, but it would also be unpragmatic and therefore un-Canadian. And unnecessary. Lightning, Lightning round! Don Bisdorf asks, how do you prefer to handle disruptive rules lawyering during a session? Robin? I entertain the petition to reevaluate the rules, and I say, you have 90 seconds to convince me. At the end of that 90 seconds, I'm going to rule. And at the end of the game, if you still care about it and you disagree with my ruling, you can talk to me about it as long as you want. And guess what? No one ever wants to talk about it after the game because the point of disruptive rules lawyering is to uh, throw a wrench into things, to demonstrate your intellectual superiority, uh, to uh, draw attention to yourself, uh, and to generally be uh, dysfunctional and disruptive uh, during play. It's a uh, result of a a way a certain uh, important subset of the population who... Um, make things good by taking them apart and rebuilding them. It is how they approach the world of, you know, how can I find this thing and find the loophole in it? And how is this broken? And how can I show I'm smarter than this thing? Useful in other contexts, disruptive in role-playing. And uh, the real test of whether someone really cares about that is to invite them to talk about it at another point when they're not on stage and they're not holding up everybody else's play. I handle disruptive rules lawyering by not inviting that person to the game ever again. Uh, because it is disruptive rules lawyering. Now, regular rules lawyering, I respond to calmly in about the time Robin has indicated, and we move on, because my players are adults. Lightning round! Jeremy French asks, what is the newest food ingredient that has you inspired? I have just very recently begun experimenting with putting uh, prepared dry mustard in ground beef for hamburgers. I am always on the sort of Uh, Look out to see if hamburgers can become even better than they are. They are already magnificent, but every now and again, I am monkeying around with stuff, and I have shown, I think, interesting results, though the data are not all yet in, but I'm still messing around with prepared dry mustard and hamburger meat. Robin? I am late to the truffle oil express, 
so if you uh, have a bit of uh, buy olive oil that's infused with truffle, there's all sorts of uh, delicious things that you can do with it. Uh, but uh, two things I would recommend that you do that you've maybe not considered is when you are roasting a chicken, it is very hard while roasting to infuse the meat of a chicken with flavor. But if you rub some truffle oil onto it, that flavor is intense enough to actually penetrate into the meat. And survive the roasting process. Yes. Right. Um, also, if you are uh, popping popcorn in oil on your stovetop uh, and you put in mostly canola oil, just put in a dash of truffle oil, and that, again, will uh, give you delicious truffly popcorn. Mmm. <laughs> truffly popcorn. popcorn. Lightning, Lightning round! Aaron Petterfee asks, Why are German Nazi SS soldiers the archetypal villains and not the Soviet communist Cheka agents? Robin? That is because the outward style of... Stalinists and uh, Stalinist-like communists is deliberately uh, drab. Their uh, language and re uh, rapacity is deliberately subsumed under deadening ideological cant. And therefore, the outward flamboyant evil of Nazis is always uh, more fun and interesting, is that uh, when you have uh, Soviet communists as bad guys, Especially now, when uh, they are, uh, you know, less present in our history, you know, the fascism is uh, bubbling back up again, and we can see that again. But the uh, but the old style commies are just uh, outwardly kind of boring, and you have to spend more time explaining why they are uh, secretly just as rapacious and murderous as the Nazis. It's a difference between a revolution led by art majors and one led by divinity students. Also, uh, in addition to uh, Hugo Boss being a better designer uh, than communists, the uh, fact is we fought a four-year-long war against uh, German Nazi SS soldiers and uh, thankfully did not fight any wars against the Red Army. So there doesn't seem to have been the national uh, desire to find the archetypal awfulness of the NKVD the same way that there was uh, for the good old SS, who, uh, as Robin indicates, came kind of right out of central casting to be in war movies. And it's kind of a shame we actually had to have the war to make it happen. And on that note, let us head on off uh, to another important commercial message and then back to more Lightning Round! What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. 
They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Lightning Round! Sean Krauss asks... In your experience, what's the sweet spot for campaign length in a rough number of sessions? In my experience, the sweet spot for campaign length should ideally be about eight months to a year. Um, that's just because it's long enough that you get a strong of a full development of the opener. You get lots of exploration in the mid game, and then you can close it off. In my lived experience, I have very little luck keeping a game down to that because I prefer to give my players long, uh, languorous leashes with which to explore their world so the opening and mid-game take longer than they perhaps ideally should from a uh, dra drama critic perspective, although since the only people criticizing the experience are the ones playing it and we're having fun, I'm not really sure that I'm doing it wrong so much as I'm just doing it against what lives in my head as the possible way to do it right. Robin? I would agree that that's about the uh, the ideal or the aspirational length. I, too, have trouble realizing that. But for the other reason, I end up often cutting things short for one of two reasons. Either uh, we lose key people in, in the group, and the, because group membership rotates, all of a sudden we're going to lose someone who's crucial to the current campaign, so we have to bring it to a conclusion. So we can then say goodbye to them. Or I then have to switch to another project to, to playtest before, if I was just doing this for uh, fun and recreation, uh, I now have to, for professional reasons, cut the current thing short in order to move on to the new thing. I uh, just recently finished a drama system game that went on for uh, 36 sessions Ooh. and was uh, it's probably has to be the current world record holder for drama system. Tell me if I'm wrong, anybody, if you've been running it for longer than that. But that was really uh, revealed a lot. And uh, perhaps uh, we can talk about uh, ending campaigns and extending campaigns uh, in a full future segment. But uh, for the moment, lightning round! Paul Weimer asks, what's the longest continuous game session you've GM'd or participated in? Robin? That's a, a single session? Single session. Well, I think that's got to go back to uh, the olden high school days when you'd play for about a, you know, a, a day, so six to eight hours. Right, yeah, I, I think that my longest continuous game session is probably a Call of Cthulhu session at some point, you know, when we would start uh, at sundown and then run until dawn. So, yeah, something on the order of 16 hours or, uh, or, or longer. Lightning round! Uh, Neil Raymond Price asks, Knights Black Agents in Ashen Stars. Space Vampires, great idea or best idea? I'm not sure that it is best idea. Maybe it's a great idea, but the trouble with Knights Black Agents and Ashen Stars blending is that Knights Black Agents is so dependent on the existence of the real world for the 
sort of vampire-y part to stick out and be scary and weird, that if you just put them into Ashen Stars, you would say, oh, look, a planet of vampires, which can be great, obviously, ask Mario Bava, but I don't know that you can really get the full flavor of Knights Black Agents that way. Robin, perhaps you, as the designer of, of Ashen Stars, have an insight into how Neil's glorious idea can be made best idea. Another challenge with the idea is that confined mobility is a big part of Knights Black Agents, that you are essentially, you're on the move between different countries, but even so, you're kind of trapped, and you've got limited options, and you have to, you know, get to this safe house here and escape scrutiny there, whereas in a space opera campaign, you've just kind of got uh, unlimited ability. As soon as you get into a ship, you can just go anywhere, and uh, so you would have to have sort of a believable galactic sector-wide uh, reason why you would have to hide from the space vampires and stay on the run and uh, why you would have really little control over your actions and movements. So in that way, I think Ashen Stars is also an exception. So I think you would need to have some other equivalent alien force be the thing that you are fleeing from, right? The uh, you know quasi-godlike aliens or, or something that could then be as frightening to you within the uh, Ashen Stars universe as vampires would be in the real world. Sort of a Peter F. Hamilton Night's Dawn type thing, only right. ideally not with the ghost of Al Capone. But as you point out, just having space vampires, uh, there's certainly a cool mystery that you could uh, have with that. Uh, one of the ideas uh, in Ashen Stars is that there are uh, synth culture planets that before the big war that changed everything... There were planets that people went to in order to live in artificial cultures. So there was, you know, the Western planet was called Planet Peckinpah, for example. So you could posit that there was a planet where everybody went to to be vampires or to be the uh, humans that vampires are fascinated by and prey upon and genetically altered themselves to create a gothic world. And you could then have a situation where, you know, you're crash landed on that. that has somehow gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow that's gone wrong. <laughs> what and, are the odds? Yeah. And so you <laughs> could have a thing where you crash land on that planet and you have to get across the planet to, uh, you know, the shipyard on the opposite side where you can steal a ship. Uh, so I guess that's as close as you could get to, uh, ashen black agents. Lightning round. Eric Jeppesen asks, what do you think about Gary Johnson as an alternative to Clint Trump? Robin? As, as an alternate object of amusing comedy due to his delightful affect? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think he's, he's an excellent ingredient in this entertainment product we call the 2016 election, but I don't have to live with the 2016 election, can? Well, I'll be voting for him, so that's at least what I think about him. Um, also, of course, as a two-term governor, he has more actual... Uh, experience for the job he is seeking than the other two candidates put together. Um, so even if he were not generally philosophically aligned with me, it, he would also be the only rational choice. But as with the entire rest of the world, that's not what's going to happen, but it'll be fun to watch. Lightning round! Thomas Vallejos asks, if you had the chance to completely redo a movie from writing to production, which one would it be? Hmm. That's an interesting question because one is tempted, of course, to want to redo a movie that one has loved and loved and loved and loved and loved for all time. But those movies don't need to be redoed from writing to production because... As Billy Wilder famously said, why remake classics? Remake why the remake classics? Exactly. So, um, uh, I don't know. Let's see. The, uh, the, the chance to sort of upgrade a movie that I, that I love but is still objectively terrible. Maybe Earth versus the Flying Saucers. 
I mean, John Carpenter managed to make the thing into a genuinely full-on terrifying thing, although he could cheat by going back to the John W. Campbell short story. I think it might be fun to to redo Earth versus the Flying Saucers and try and make it actually uh, something. Although, again, Independence Day kind of did that, but um, you would ideally want to also improve the writing. I don't know. Um, you would have to sort of dig around and find a movie that's, uh, that's legitimately terrible. Maybe Forbidden Planet, because Forbidden Planet, you can go back and, and add more Lear, I guess, is, is a possibility. Uh, but Forbidden Planet is so great, you'd, you'd hate to do it wrong. Robin? I think the, the John, the recent John Carter movie is so horrible on every level, so completely misconceived from start to finish, that, and, uh, a do-over is never going to happen, that I think that's the most interesting exercise in, figuring out how you would actually do that as a writing exercise. Oh yeah, that's true. There's, there's the horrendous misfire. So you could, you could pick a uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen, or you could pick um, uh, the Solomon Kane movie. Yeah. The the most recent uh, Lone Ranger movie. How would you have done that? I'd forgotten actual disasters as opposed to movies in which you see a gleam of, of possibility. Right. Yeah, that opens it way up. Right. And all of those, of course, are examples of terrible adaptations from other media. From um, magnificent other media, by and large. Lightning Round! Phil Masters asks, which non-Marvel, non-DC comics superhero would you like to see get his or her own modern-style TV series? Robin? Nell Vanna, the uh, 1940s Canadian comic book heroine uh, who is a, a manifestation of the Northern Lights and who uh, has a namesake animation studio named after her. I would kind of have to go with the spirit because uh, on the, maybe it's just the, the previous question having made me think of um, uh, crippled uh, adaptations of great source media. Uh, I think the spirit, if you could get a writer who actually got the spirit, that would be really fun to see built out as a proper modern style TV series because you could play around with the visuals the way that the comic does and you have the sort of ongoing characters, but it's very episodic. So I think it would work very nicely. Lightning round. Pedro Garcia asks, which other kinds of music are played in the gaming hut apart from Peter Frampton? Uh, I want to correct a Miss uh, Prisian here. We do not play the music of Peter Frampton. We merely use the cover as a GM's screen, the cover of the famous double album, Peter Frampton Comes Alive. I don't play music in my huts. Will Heinmarch plays great music, mostly action-y soundtrack type music. But I got to say, having heard the Man from Uncle soundtrack, if I'm ever going to run me a spy-fi version of Fall of Delta Green, I am going to be playing the heck out of the Man from Uncle soundtrack during it. Robin? Yes. Now, on the rare occasions when I introduce the gaming hut, uh, we are obviously Ken's gaming hut. We're being ushered back into the gaming hut of Ken's youth, what with the uh, shag carpet and the Peter Frampton uh, double live uh, jam screen. Uh, but I try to indicate uh, when I can that, of course, not everybody's gaming hut is so accoutred. and that so we, grognardian. Right. So that we have new gaming huts that the, uh, full of the things that the kids today like. So uh, I've mentioned Florence and the Machine in the past. I think uh, Courtney uh, Barnett deserves a, a shout out at this point. Uh, as far as actually playing music during uh, the game, I think we had a whole segment about this. But, yeah, I, I find it mostly a distraction, but... Uh, during, say, Feng Shui to fight scenes, I will play my fight scenes uh, playlist, which is on Spotify. And uh, is, I think you can search for it publicly and you can find a few type in fight scenes. You can search for it on Spotify. I've experimented in the past, uh, for example, with uh, music from the period uh, for Dream Hands of Paris. But I found it mostly distracting and you can never tell. <laughs> what? Eric Satie is distracting. <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, Arthur Honegger is even more distracting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, Deep e- cuts. Even Josephine Baker is distracting. Y- yeah, you but can't necessarily assume, you know, time things properly, and it's just sort of another element where people need to focus. So yeah. you just uh, you just need to be you need to be good at it to do it. And uh, so if you're not Wilhelm March, kids, think hard about becoming Wilhelm March in your life. Lightning, Lightning round. Brian asks, "How would you make theaters and hotels interesting to experienced time travelers who think they've seen it all?" Robin. Well, the uh, the way to make it interesting is sort of a assigned uh, dorm sharing, so that you get all of the uh, anxiety and surus of having to uh, interact with other people uh, on a one to one basis. And so it's not pleasant, uh, but it's interesting. Um, yeah, I would say um, uh, assassinations. That's how you make a theater or a hotel interesting to a time traveler. I mean, it's why I'm there ninety percent of the time, as it transpires. Lightning round. Uh, Thomas Edward asks, what are two favorite summertime side dishes? It is hard to beat, uh, and by hard I mean impossible to beat, uh, sweet corn uh, in season. And if you make corn on the cob in the great American Midwest, and I don't know if the corn belt extends up into Ontario, but oh, I assume it, sure it does. does. My, uh, my uh, father-in-law grows corn. Right, and so there you go. So if you have ever been in a corn state, and you have bought corn at a farmer's market or a small produce store where the farmer has trucked it in this morning and dumped it off. Or if you are so lucky as to have relatives or family members on a farm and gone to their farm uh, and had corn right out of the fields, there is, I think, literally nothing better than corn on the cob boiled off of uh, fresh sweet corn. Robin? Uh, that is incorrect insofar as incorrect. corn on the cob is not a side dish. When you get corn on the cob, it's the only thing you eat. It's the main Just course. Just eat a whole bunch of corn on the cob. Uh, other than that, splendid choice. Uh, I would say that there, in summertime, there's, uh, again, you want to stick with the classics, as I previously alluded to. So I would say potato salad. Uh, however, I'm going to put a little spin on the classic with my uh, curry potato salad. So uh, what you do is you, uh, uh, early in the morning that day, before it gets too hot, uh, you boil up your uh, potatoes and put them aside in the fridge. And then uh, as you are uh, grilling the stuff that goes with the potato salad, uh, either on uh, a little sheet of uh, tin foil or a uh, if you have one of those uh, barbecue grill pans, just take a, a couple of spoonfuls of uh, pataks, uh, either biryani paste or uh, mild curry paste, and uh, just heat them up a little on the grill because uh, you are not supposed to eat any of those patak sauces raw. There's something in them that needs to be cooked for food safety reasons. And then you uh, take those along with an equivalent number of dollops of uh, mayonnaise and then perhaps some chopped up uh, chives or dill. And you put them all together with the potatoes and voila, you have amazing, delicious uh, curry potato salad, which is both uh, hip and different, yet also alludes to a classic of summertime eating. Lightning round! Steve Dempsey asks, Boris Johnson, Rob Ford, or Donald Trump? Who wins the Clown Award? Robin? Well, I I think with the benefit of the time between us having asked these questions and now answering them, uh, clearly Boris Johnson has epically beclowned himself. Uh, He was definitely following that playbook, but he didn't even wind up in the contention for the job that he uh, wreaked so much havoc to grab, and therefore uh, is the uh, biggest clown in that particular clown car. Also, in uh, a category not unknown for exciting hair, I think Boris has the funniest hair. 
So I would agree with Robin. Boris is the clowniest of the three. And on that note, let us head off for another commercial, and then we'll be right back. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the... Cultists. Conspirators. Creatures. And inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about... Character creation. Investigation. Combat. Sanity. Gear. Agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. And we're back with another Lightning, Lightning Round! Matthew Downard asks... Who would win in a two-fisted pulp punch-up between writer and game designer Robin D. Laws and game designer writer Kenneth Height? And which system would you use? <laughs> I think I think a slap fight is perhaps a better term than punch-up. Uh, <laughs> or are we? Um, uh, or is it a duel of wits? If it's a duel of wits, we would both fight to a draw, and the world would be destroyed. Exactly. So we don't do that. Uh, a two-fisted pulp punch-up. Let's see, which system would we use? Uh, it'll have to be a very unrealistic combat system to provide excitement in um, uh, two doughy, upper-middle-aged men fighting. Um, I think, And Robin's not even that doughy, but he's also more pacific than I am. So it, 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 it counts the same, I think. Yes, I, I would be. Uh, I, I would not want to fight someone who... Uh, what's the kind way to, to put in this? If, if you sat on me, I'd be in trouble. Yes, right. Yes. Oh, I, that it, wasn't it, the kind way to say that. That I wasn't the kind. We'll, we we'll fix it in post, wits. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> and, and not a sophisticated one either, so... Lightning, Lightning round! John Tabor asks, Game designer, dead or alive, that you want to have a drink with and why? In the spirit the question is asked, I would say Nigel Findlay, who I actually never met, but who has influenced my work uh, more than a little bit. He's a terrific writer, just on the sort of straight-up prose-style way. He wrote uh, GURPS Illuminati, which is one of the seminal books for presenting a broad and impossible target uh, well and interestingly. And he wrote a good bit of chill, which I enjoyed a good bit back in the day. And it is one of the great uh, regrets, I think, that I have in this career that I did not get to meet him before his very tragic early passing. And I, I guess that is who, on the, in the spirit of the question. Robin? Um, I would pick someone who I'd never had a chance to uh, drink with. I was lucky enough to meet and chat with Nigel, but I never got a chance to hang out with either H.G. Wells mm -hmm. or Fletcher Pratt. So I would... Uh, oh, Pratt in a Pratt in a landslide. H.G. Wells is a jerk. <laughs> Well, uh, there you go. H.G. Uh, Wells, I think, is still more bragging rights if you get a selfie, but... Uh... That, that, that's like, no, no, if you're going to do bragging rights, you've got to brag about the person that the person you're bragging to has to look up. That's how to do bragging rights. I suppose. Lightning, Lightning round! Paul Wiggy Wade Wellman asks, is Kenneth Hyde an elder god or a great old one? 
Um, I am, as all who follow me know, an avatar of Thoth Dionysos, a hermetic deity of the latter Ptolemies, the latter and more drunken Ptolemies. Uh, that said, um, those two would indicate that I am a great old one, but uh, obviously I am a weak god of Earth at best, so elder god it is. Robin? Uh, I don't know about that, but I do know that Virgil's from Ulthar. Vol- Virgil is from Ulthar. Lightning, Lightning round! round. Andrew Miller asks, I'm tired of serving brie as an appetizer when I have dinner parties. What soft cheese should I be serving instead, Robin? La Sauvignon from Quebec. Any decent sheep's milk is uh, perfectly good, and you should go ahead and serve that. Lightning round! Uh, Brett B. asks, which edition of D&D is your preferred edition to run? And which is your preferred edition to play? Um, I have not run or played all of the editions. I strongly suspect that my preferred edition to run is either fifth or one of the sort of early monkey OSR type ones where it's all the B's and the X's and the Red's books and whatnot, where it's all the sort of slurry of things we all remember from childhood. Um, and my preferred edition to play historically was fourth because it gave me uh, power ups while feeling in play very Dungeons and Dragons-y. But I understand that is a minority opinion and I could be incorrect. And again, I haven't played all the D&Ds either, but I, I assume that uh, that is as close as I'm going to get in this lifetime unless suddenly uh, fifth edition blows up into my life. Robin? The edition of D&D that is my preferred edition to run... Uh, would be either, uh, well, let's say 5th edition. I like 5th sure. edition. Uh, well, no, wait. Hmm. Uh, let me think about that. My preferred edition to run is 13th Age. Ooh, sick burn. W- without the icons. Yeah. Because, uh, I, and this is where we'll find out if Rob and Jonathan actually listen to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I found them cumbersome to implement. Or rather, they kept interrupting play like a... Uh, a seventh player at the table who kept uh, demanding everyone's attention. Like a character in a post-Botchko TV series with a contract. <laughs> yes. Whereas, in terms of uh, just, they have cool uh, compact monsters and uh, they are even easier to run than the fourth edition monsters that inspired them. Uh, and so, uh, as a GM, I prefer that. Uh, I don't know, I might I like to play fifth. Uh, which is also, uh, as D&Ds go, has a uh, light learning curve because I don't have time to learn somebody else's rules. I also would, uh, if we are inducing question, uh, answers that are not answering the question, I very much enjoy running 13th Age as well. Lightning Round! Carrie Shuttrick asks, Would it have actually been good for the 20 July plot to have successfully killed Hitler and seized control? Robin! Uh, Ken! <laughs> um, I would say yes, because killing Hitler is good by definition. It is the, you know, um, uh, the, the absolute good thing, killing Hitler. Um, would it have been good for the Western allies? Would it have been good for Germany? Would it have been good for the later course of Europe? Um, I think still all those are things are possible. If von Stauffenberg had wound up in charge of Germany, which is, you know, I assume what successfully killed Hitler and seized control all involves, he, he would not have continued to fight a lost war on the Western Front. He would have negotiated a separate peace with the Allies to the extent that he could have, and he was probably bright enough to do it out in public so that the American and British uh, voting publics could say, we're going to lose how many people so that Stalin gets a third of Germany? 
I don't think so. So yeah, I would say it would have been pretty good for everybody, uh, except Stalin for the 20 July plot to have successfully killed Hitler, seized control and surrendered to America and Britain as fast as their little former Nazi legs could carry them. Lightning Lightning round! Ross asks, will we reach peak zombie anytime soon? Please say yes. Depending on how you, uh, uh, in, in terms of percentage of popular culture that is zombie, we may have already passed it. But, uh, in terms of the actual amount of zombie, we will never pass it because there is always more culture being made and zombies is fun. Robin? I think we've reached peak zombie in terms of its dominance in the pop culture, right? Now that there's two variants of The Walking Dead and there's still, you know, uh, you don't think the site. Walking Dead's like CSI? They're just going to keep people still watching Walking Dead special zombie unit. But but I don't think we're going to see. Uh, and there's some smaller ones being done. You know, there's uh, a couple of low budget uh, Z Nation that Sheila likes very much. Yeah, but I don't think we're going to see a whole bunch more. Um, it is going to always be a thing, in part because uh, their zombies are cheap to do, mm-hmm. um, and so there'll, there'll still be a lot of people who their first movie is going to be an undistinguished zombie movie. But I think we've uh, definitely in terms of the ramp up of the mythology and uh, them sort of breaking through into pop culture, which required a greater mainstream acceptance of uh, extreme gore effects. I think we are, we're already at peak zombie. Somebody's going to have to figure out a new way of doing zombies before they surge back again. Lightning round! Sir Turkey Bane asks, what books should I read before running a Moondust Men game? Robin? You should read Ken's, uh, first of all, Ken writes about stuff about the Moondust Men. And uh, uh, I think you just sort of pick, go to a used bookstore, uh, pick any three UFO books at random, and decide that what is in all of them is true. And then that's your Moondust Mine game. I can also add to that uh, uh, remarkably uh, excellent divinatory method that you should ideally read something by Jacques Vallée, uh, uh, possibly one of the later ones that are, uh, more Gallimaufries and less well thought out arguments. Um, and you should read Curtis Peebles' Watch the Skies, a history of the UFO movement and myth. And, uh, maybe, um, hmm, what would I say? Uh, The Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington, um, about, uh, the people whose job it was to lie to other people about UFOs. Uh, that would be certainly, Interesting. Uh, I don't know how game relevant it would be. Maybe just stick with Valley and Peebles and the three books that Robin found for you in the used bookstore. Lightning round! Uh, Johan Lundstrom asks, how to tell whether to use lime or lemon? Uh, first of all, the recipe should tell you. But second of all, in a drink, um, determine how much sweetness you uh, the, the drink already has. If the drink needs to be uh, made more acid, then use lemon if the drink needs to be complementarily sweetened or merely uh, brightened use lime in a recipe um i think you can pretty much use whichever one you have unless you're you know making something that's like fish that the flavor is really going to come through on and then just you know always use lemon with fish robin uh well if the question is how to tell mm-hmm. uh taste it that's how to tell uh anything in cooking and it's the thing that people most often forget to do uh is to continue to taste what it is that you're doing. Uh, and so you'll know whether you personally like something better with lemon or with lime. Obviously, older recipes always say lemon because they uh, come from a time when limes were not readily commercially available. And there's a lot of the older recipes that uh, assume lemon, uh, but are sort of more interesting with 
uh, Lyme, but the only way to know on a consistent basis is to uh, is to try it. Uh, you can't go too far wrong. They're not so different that you'll destroy a, a choice by going in the other direction. I would be much more uh, up to replacing lemon with lime than vice versa. But sometimes you've only got one or the other, and uh, the other times when you can choose, uh, taste it. Lightning, Lightning round. Ian Bankins asks, will Gumshoe one-to-one have conversion rules for existing campaigns such as the Dracula dossier? Robin? It will barely have sort of an allusion to the fact that we're going to later roll out, assuming that one-to-one gets the same kind of response when we release it, as it has gotten so far from playtesters, which is not very much. Uh, There will be an appendix at the back, which has... Uh, character stats for all of the different genres that different gumshoe games have addressed so far, and that's about it. And that's the reason. And that's because conversion rules in general are something that gamers really want and are going to ask you to have. But it is almost always a mistake to include them because the original two things that uh, you want to convert from one to the other, neither of them is built on a formula which you can then just take and then turn into this other thing, all of them have to be built from the ground up. And a a standard gumshoe adventure uh, has to assume a whole bunch of things that you can't assume in a solo adventure and vice versa. And the way that the uh, tests are handled in standard gumshoe versus the way that challenges are handled in one-to-one Uh, They just require a lot of handcrafting. And so if I just gave you sort of a set of numbers to say, well, here's how to take a difficulty four challenge uh, from a regular gumshoe scenario, and uh, here's the difficulties that you would use in one-to-one, that's not going to work. That's going to create a false expectation that you're going to have a good gaming experience if you do that, whereas it won't. It'll break. And there's no... Uh, since they're not created with a mathematical formula, there's no mathematical formula that you can then retrofit onto it. Uh, and the act of adapting scenarios, and I think we will eventually take some popular scenarios and adapt them to that format, but the adapted version will have to be quite different than the original, much more than uh, you could possibly get with the use of some kind of convergence system. So the, the idea is you think you want that, but if we gave it to you, boy, would you be disappointed. And also it would take up a lot of space for something that is not necessarily how you're going to be playing it. Exactly. That said, it would be fun to do Billy Harker as a um, first-person character in a Dracula dossier uh, one-to-one scenario. So maybe yeah, you, maybe you we'll can do absolutely do a super interesting uh, uh, Knight's Black Agent. Because that's, you know, Jason Bourne. There's only one Jason Bourne. There's, and there's only one James Bond. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, so it would totally work, but it would have to be built from the ground up, not converted from the existing thing. Scott Benny asks, what episode of Ken and Robin would you recommend as a gateway episode for new listeners? Man, that's tough. Um, I, I'm tempted to cop out and just say one of the earlier lightning round episodes, because you get sort of a sense of the things we care about in the sense of what everyone asks about. But that seems awfully cop-outably. Robin, do you have a better answer than my cop-out answer? Uh, well, I've had to answer this question by picking the episode to submit for the Any Awards ah, judges. so you have. So, uh, I would uh, say 162 or uh, possibly uh, 198. 198, all right. Well, 198. 198. Lightning round! Alex White asks, What do you think of physical mechanics which reinforce an RPG's themes, like Dread or Ten Candles? 
Um, I have not played 10 candles. Uh, I have played dread dread. I think works against pacing 10 candles. I don't know whether or not uh, it works uh, for pacing. I think like any other tool, it can be used to move the game forward or against the game's intent and whether or not it works that way often just comes down to the table because obviously I've heard hundreds and hundreds, well, not hundreds. I've heard tens of people who have had nothing but thrills and spills enjoy playing dread. So even a, a mechanic that I feel is just fundamentally wrong for the game can turn out to be fun in play. So I'm not sure that a large scale condemnation or, um, uh, or congratulation is in order there. Robin? Uh, my answer is kind of similar. I haven't played either of those games. Uh, I find them inspiring to know that they exist, and I assume the people who are having fun playing them uh, are genuinely having fun, so who am I to say? Uh, as a designer, if I was asked to incorporate something like that into a design, the design challenge would be to make sure that that was something that supported the GM and players rather than imposing an experience on them that they are fighting away from. Our final lightning round for episode 200 comes from Scott Carter, who asks, what is the most underused element of the mythos? I think the most underused element of the mythos, by and large, is the notion that the mythos underlies all human supernatural belief. Religions, magic, superstition, that everything that we think is uh, true about the universe, or that we think is exalted and noble and pure about the universe is actually just misunderstood alien hypergeometry. And I think people sort of pay a lot of lip service to that, but then they're like, oh, but here's good magic that you can use against the mythos, or here's um, uh, here's a pious priest and, and or, or some other aspect of, of human belief that is, um, uh, that is somehow opposite to or against the mythos, and that undercuts what I think is the mythos's universality. And also, um, uh, on that similar note, uh, the way that, say, the uh, Whisper in Darkness paints the Migo as the answer to lots of different cryptid legends all the way back to the fauns and satyrs of uh, ancient Europe um, and then forward to Bigfoots and Yetis. I, I think that that is underused. The people add cryptids when, in fact, a cryptid should just be yet another damn Migo. And so I, I feel that the the there's the, the mythos presents a very stark uh, uh, a world in which all humanity is leached out, and that includes a lot of what humans uh, who run and play role-playing games want to include in flavor. And so it winds up being uh, underused because you want to appeal to that uh, fanish instinct as well. Robin? On a somewhat related note, I think the science fiction-y side of uh, the mythos is too often neglected in favor of the uh, occult supernatural side. And so, as Ken suggests, you know, the Migo are, are aliens, and a lot of the other uh, threats are, you know, ancient alien races who can uh, influence us through uh, telepathy. And I think, again, it's because sort of the appeal of gothic and horror imagery is so great that we uh, too often forget to uh, add the weirdo ray guns and the uh, strange interdimensional threats on top of the... Uh, and it would be fun to explore, you know, the... Uh, you know, there's just as much about science going awry as about beliefs in the supernatural going awry. And so that's always um, something that you can hit. Also, Brown Jenkins. Also, Brown Jenkins. And on that note, our lightning round is over. So thanks, everybody, uh, for listening to the 200th episode, for listening to as many of these 200 episodes as you have listened to in the past. And thanks for uh, whatever future listening you intend to do starting next week when we're back with episode 201. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. On this 200th anniversary episode, we thank each and every one of our sagacious sponsors. But not individually. Like Zeus, Thor, and Pele, you bring the lightning. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.